Uh, welcome to another episode of Read the Fucking Manual, the podcast where we read RPG manuals. Uh, I'm Aaron. I'm a game designer in Minneapolis, East Dakota, irradiated states of America. <laughs> yeah, great. Wow. I, I'm i Max. I don't have any fun uh, data about where I am currently located. So I'm just, uh, I guess I'm just a boring old game designer in Halifax. Boring old Halifax. And the person we stole. <laughs> yeah, no. And the person that we stole, it wasn't until recently, but the person that we stole the, the format of introducing ourselves from. Um, my name and my place. My name's Williams. I'm a tabletop game designer in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. What's up, everybody? Uh, I'm looking for where my kind of irradiated zone is. Um, but I grew up. Uh, outside DC, so Fallout 3. I then moved to Boston, so the Fallout 4. And I live in Toronto now, uh, which kind of just feels like an irradiated wasteland. So that's. <laughs> Woof. Its soul, at least, is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the mass cell death is happening on a sociological level here. <laughs> Oh, having having just left, I get to take take as many Toronto digs as I want. I, d- I did my twenty years time. I can dig all I want. Will, do you want to say anything quick about more specifics for your project? Yeah, um, I am co-publisher at Good Luck Press in partnership with Seb Pines, where we publish cool, weird boutique role playing games, including the game Torque Rally Raid Role Playing, which is a game where you play a car pg where you play drivers in a weird world connecting communities and crunching creeps on the road uh it's available now at goodluckpress.co um make a ton of other games check them out will yobst.itch.io and thanks for having me i love this podcast we're excited uh i mean you are partially responsible for this we'll get into Oops. that later <laughs> but you're you're Ideas behind gaming archaeology were a huge inspiration. We've mentioned them here before. Uh, maybe we'll get into it more today. But we do have to do our other required segment, which is uh, what's everyone wearing? This is my favorite un- totally unrelated segment. I did, we will... I did flash my camera earlier when no one was doing I didn't know the norms. I was going to type a quick message. Hey, do we share uh, screen cameras? Um, so I'll go first because you've seen what I'm wearing. Um I watched an episode of Lost last night, and I saw that Locke was just really rocking a white tee, and so I wanted to wear white tee today. <laughs> so uh, doing that, I've got some Fila joggers I thrifted last week and a neon green irradiated beanie. Beautiful. Uh, I'm wearing my hardiest trousers for this wasteland we're about to enter, and uh, a homemade muscle shirt that says pure strain human in the front sent to steed in the back <laughs> i love that as a sentence that you just said i hate that idea <laughs> the it's idea psh yeah well mainly the sent to speed in the back it sent to speed in the back just is upsetting to me <laughs> in many ways uh i am wearing before we got on the call i sat down to like make the link and then i realized that i was wearing my outdoor sweatpants and i was like no no fuck this i will go and change to my indoor sweatpants this is i realize this hasn't come up before it is important to have uh if you are a sweatpant connoisseur like myself 
I have the sweatpants that look terrible, that are comfy, that are giant, that I wear around the house. And then I have the sweatpants that are like jogger style and like fitted and a little bit thicker that I wear out of the house to look reasonable so that I can be comfortable everywhere. Uh, Like if someone was filming a TikTok on the street and wanted to ask you what music you were listening to, you would be wearing those. That'd be those sweatpants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm also wearing a t-shirt that I've had for... 22 years uh that is almost threadbare that is this is i'm on theme i'm on theme for the game tonight it is a a t-shirt from an army surplus place that just says army on the front which i also won't wear leaving my house for obvious reasons (laughs) but it has more of a a navy head yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) but it has a reinforced neck and for some in some strange bizarre it's like the it it is the weirdest t-shirt because i have fluctuated probably 80 to 100 pounds in that in that period of and it has fit me always (laughs) so i will never get rid of this t-shirt i will just wear it in my house in shame you got a magic shirt somehow got a magic shirt i have a, a shirt of holding Mean. In comic books, they're called unstable molecules. Mm, um, today we are talking about Gamma World, first edition, uh, published by TSR Games in 1978, written by James M. Ward and Gary. I don't know how to say this last name. Jacay. Jacay. AKA Jim Jacay. Uh, I thought it was Jake Jacay. Jake Jacay. <laughs> J.K. Uh, this was published five years after TSR's founding. Just for some context, uh, Ward had previously written Metamorphosis Alpha, which was their big in-house sci-fi game, and J.K. was an editor of TSR's Dragon Magazine. And little fun fact, Jim Ward was a player in Gary Gygax's first Greyhawk campaign, and Dromage, the famed magician and creator of the spell Dromage's Instant Summons, is named after Jim Ward, because it's just... Jim Ward spelled backward. Oh, I was looking through the bestiary for this game because I know that that is Gary's thing is just to spell something backwards. Like mm-hmm. Nilbog, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Um, and I couldn't find any in the bestiary because I know he's came in and the only thing Gygax did for this game was just name a bunch of monsters. Yeah, the monster names are wild. I absolutely yeah. have a note about them. They're we'll so weird. <laughs> um, I'm really disappointed that they're not something backwards because you said that, and I was like, oh, maybe that's why they're like that. <laughs> and then, but if they're not, <laughs> now I'm going to read them all backwards and forwards and see if there is a possible. Or maybe, are they like, there has to be, be anagrams or something. I was yeah, going to say, are know. they anagrams? There has to be some kind of meaning. I So, like, something in the. Uh, Jake JK does a interview where he's like, the thing I would change might be these monster names. I know that Gary is the guy, but like, I don't, these don't really work. It's true. That's my note, actually, is that they are not evocative. They are nonsense. Except for um, one of them, but we'll get there. <laughs> Before two, we get two, the book, I though, two. I did want to give Will a chance to talk about their game archaeology their heckhead stuff if they want to talk about it yeah because that was a huge inspiration for me like wanting to start this podcast awesome well that that is such a huge compliment and you do like i learned so much from i love this podcast so much it is if i could commission a podcast it would look like this so it rules um yeah so 
I'm really interested in all kinds of games and just really living in the spirit of those way the way those games are played, whether they are, you know, skirmish war games or story games or lyric games, and that includes um, games like Gamma World, which are just wild early RPG games, RPG games, um, ATM machine that pin number, number. (laughs) Um, checkmate myself Uh, and. (laughs) So part of that, this experience, and I was also inspired by John Harness, who does this process too. We talked once about Metamorphosis Alpha and basically picking games to play exactly to the letter um, to not so much to have the best game night of all time, but to play this game as hard as possible. And I've done it with a couple of games, but this one in particular... Uh, we ran with the Brain Trust and did a West Marches style game called Heckheads, where all the players were Heckheads. And, you know, I like to do West Marches games that have like a leaderboard so people know who's doing the best and to inspire people to play. And I like that reality show element in RPGs, it rules. And part of it was just sitting long form with these rules and deciding together as a table that, like, if we don't know something, we will stop and like check it out together and talk about it. And you know, it's, it's brain trust is a bunch of mega designer freaks. So they are on board for sitting down and parsing some words and stuff. So there was this great example where we were rolling characters, game world, post-apocalyptic game. You play um, freaks in the nuclear wasteland that are all mutated, except in one certain particular case, um, we were checking out the mutation tables and there was one example where John Geary was getting a uh, fire vision or something like that. And we didn't understand how it worked. And so we figured out that the way the rules, like really as raw as it gets rules as written, had you, you needed to stare at somebody for 15 minutes to make them. <laughs> like get on fire it was like something like this and so we were just like trying to contrive a situation where you would have to stare at somebody for this a long time to get them exploding all that stuff so that's just one small example of how you know living inside the rules is like an exquisite experience is what i called it because you are really to the letter playing this game and trying to take like to use this game in place of your brain that you might in rpgs and i learn a lot about writing games and rules writing in particular from this process so it's really fun it's extremely weird for a game like this it can be frustrating and boring but i like it yeah i am i am increasingly interested in in the process of playing games the the way they're intended to be played or like the way in which you think the designer (laughs) intended them to be played yeah uh largely because like as i just like once you once you start to realize just how many games exist in the world i'm like there's no reason for me to make up to like homebrew a game system this is where i know there's lots of reasons for other people to do it but for me i've come to this place where i'm like 
there's a game out there that is the game I want to play probably. And I won't know that unless I play, try playing them the way they're meant to be played. And if that's not how what I like, my solution is no longer like, I'll just modify things. It's I'll try a different game <laughs> that is kind of yeah. similar. And you learn a lot about how things work in concert in a way that you might ignore or otherwise brush past. If something, if anything is sticky at all, I think, like, as people that like more than two role-playing games, you know that it doesn't take much for you to have fun. Like, you really just are with friends and talking. And so what if the conversation was, like, labyrinthine and strange, and you had to, like, there's this feeling that you want to magnetically attach to other players and have the game conversation, but there's this bizarre piece of metal in the way that you have to navigate together. And that's that archaeology, that dusting, and sometimes you snap a bone in half and that's okay. You got a new dinosaur at that point. But But it is interesting too, like grappling with those rules can be a form of play of just like that satisfaction of figuring out how it's supposed to work can feel just as good as like crafting a good scene or rolling a good role or something like that. And it's so interesting to me how much how many like implicit assumptions come out when you're trying to play games that way um like someone on reddit is always asking for a game recommendation for this genre but what they leave out is like i have four players they all will or will not read the rule book they all you know we play for four hours we think we text about it all week or something like Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff can lead to a certain style of play or create an enjoyment of a game like this one in a way that maybe you know four single parents meeting for an hour a week may might not be able to draw that experience out of it which is not to say that any of those are the proper way to play but just like all those weird assumptions or like i feel like gamma world assumes you have a basement with a big table yeah they never say that but (laughs) the the map of the u.s that they have with it totally betrays that and I, I think one of the biggest things that doing this exercise does, um, and I recommend anybody that's listening, just like pick a game you've always been interested in and play to the letter and, and see what happens. And get to the moment where you run into a situation and you would otherwise make a ruling in a game you were familiar with, but you can just say, I don't know, and then go to the book. And that freeing, that fr- that freedom then you have to learn and stop and take a break kind of change the way i think about games it's a really easy uh, parallel if you're coming from D too because i have never i have never once in my entire life played a session of D where at some point in the session somebody wasn't like i actually don't know what the very specific minute <laughs> rule is about this thing that we're doing but there is one uh, so i feel like it's also a thing that people already know how to do uh, yeah and especially coming from like D where i took the from the monster manual, I took the construct rules and you can like build your own construct and stuff. And I just like flavored that for every single enemy that anyone would ever need. And I just, cause I didn't want to do the extra work of learning anything else. And like, this is the exact opposite of that where I just have to use the things in the book. I have to think inside of the squareness of the book, but it allows like the creativity and the palette and everything like that. But yeah, that's like, the game archaeology thing and it is a a huge blast i love it constant inspiration 
Um, should we dive into the book? Yeah, the weird book. Uh, we did it. Can we, st- can we start with the title font? <laughs> yes. Gamma World is set in Fracture, which you might recognize from Manic Panic Hair Dye. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, also Thank you used, so I have found yes. multiple uh, comic books that use that font for like their issue title or something. Um, usually yeah, like with a... the fracture, broken world, broken mirror, fractured timeline, whatever. It's like completely beautiful and that they did it. For, so we're, we're talking about a font no one can see right now. It is like a standard blocky sans serif all caps font that seems to be like uh, having three layers with some block out, so it looks like this kind of wavy cracked mirror thing that Aaron was saying. And doing that like by hand in, I think it was made in the 60s, um, just really beautiful. It just looks really good. It's the thing about this game that has aged the best is how cool the title, <laughs> the t- logo type is. This is the betrayal um, of Santa Steve, but we'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> that was an attack on the Institute of the Santa Steve. Um, beautiful cover font, beautiful cover art. And then it starts with a page of introduction. It's like lore, history of the world. Um, it's post-apocalyptic, like ostensibly post-nuclear, but everything was blown up in 2309 so there's like rocket ships and robots all over and stuff um which i enjoy it makes it a big part of the book ends up being about like finding technology and trying to describe it to the players without saying you find a computer um and so the idea that there is this hundreds of years of advanced technology in the mix is a nice little twist on that the uh source of the apocalypse too is it seems like a very 70s thing as well. Like this fear that special interest groups would g- <laughs> gain so much power and weaponry that they would, they don't know who began the apocalypse, but it was because of our increasingly divided times, which just feels like the most 70s. Just like some weird thing. centrist bullshit. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. It's it's effectively if Anonymous threatened to nuke the planet because we're bad, and then obviously we'd be bad by Anonymous' standards, and so they nuked the planet. When Yet I was you live it, I was like, in a yeah. nuked planet. Yeah. <laughs> You're not taking us seriously. We're going to nuke the planet or whatever. Uh, I I am so pleased with this because it is, I realize we're, is this episode five? This is episode five or something. I don't know. We've read some books. Uh, and it's the first book that we've read and game that we have read that I'm like, I want to play it. I want to play it. I think it's cool. I actually would like to play this game. There's many matrixes. It's great. The matrix. Yeah. Um, even just like, even making a character in the game is so much fun. Like it, cause it turns into this like creative writing project about your mutations, but that'll come later. Yeah, but I'm so it's super upfront about like this is a book that is like a set of tools for you. And you all the players will have to do some work to like build the world. There's no starting adventure. There's very little like prefab material. It's very much a toolkit and it's very straightforward about saying that, which I think is like some of the best GMing advice that we've seen in books so far of just like you're going to build your own thing. Here's some ways to do it. 
And it does all that in 60 pages, which I think this is the shortest book we've read so far as well. Bless. It's <laughs> just wild how this is like TSR's fourth or fifth straight up game. And this is the second one that um, James Ward did. And it just feels so contemporary. Yeah. I don't know what the fuck Magic Juice was going on back then but um okay except for the matrixes but yes uh but but even then they are just they're kind of stretchy in this way that are just so interesting and the the rules writing language like invites you into it in this very definitely compared to gygax in a way that is like humanistic and strange and i can feel that the author is a human being and not like a dm right we've talked before about just the kind of like faux academic uh almost trying to be sort of superior language that a lot of older rule books and even some contemporary ones use about like talking down to people as they're learning and trying to sound like a textbook this book sounds much more just like a person who's excited about a weird thing (laughs) Uh, like maybe doesn't have the best language for it, but is obviously excited and just wants to get you on board. Yeah, it's rad. It's uh, I was I found it interesting because I mean speaking to it being a toolbox a little bit, like it starts, it starts with how to use this book and like the tools you'll need, which is great and good, and then it goes instantly into like designing your world. Like it doesn't start. I feel like the the convention that I'm used to being exposed to in these books is that it starts with character creation, and that's very early. That's very quick, but the before it gets into actual characters, it gets into like, let's talk about the world. Let's talk about the weird shit that's left over that you're gonna place all over the world that are go that everybody's gonna engage with in some way, shape, or form, like the tombs of the ancient or whatever. Um, it's it was very such interesting. Such an interesting like scene setting for before you make characters. It knows that like okay, you're an extra super-duper mute freak who's going to be reading role-playing games in the 70s. So, like, you have a f- composition book filled with ideas. Right. And here is, like... Th- yeah, there's definitely some some sauce there that you can create an intro into the systems of the world. Because it says, like, okay, there are villages, towns, cities, metropolises, forts spaceports and here's some other things that you can have to connect them and then it kind of gets you into this travelogue or you know adventuring mindset of the players are going to be in these places instead of a game that immediately begins with an intro that's very hot and sexy and then goes right into character creation and then the rubber will hit the road and then there's some disconnect between you know, well, I thought we were going to be fighting a dungeon and a dragon here, but it seems like I'm actually in a shitty village. <laughs> There's rats in a basement. <laughs> yeah, I'm a rat catcher. Uh, yeah, it's just very clear scene setting and expectation setting in a way that I don't see a lot, I feel. I mean, I see like in indie games right now, uh, the idea that you can just say at the start of your game, Here's some things that people might do. Here are some verbs. Here are some like tools. Here are some expectations on you as a GM. Uh, I feel like that's pretty rare, pretty special. And it kind of goes through the book with these elements that nothing is taken for granted that you might know about role-playing games. 
and it gives you all the terms and stuff you need without being completely jargon destroyed and it doesn't it's not it's unpretentious in the way it talks about stuff um which i really which makes this a very easy book to like do this archaeology on yes um so yeah some of the mechanical stuff like max said it starts with building the world uh gets into creating characters which will look familiar to dungeons and dragons players there's six stats you roll three dice uh, there's no wisdom, though. Instead of wisdom, you have mental strength, which is for using your sweet mutation mental powers. <laughs> and then it says you can play a pure strain human, which is a rare, <laughs> unmutated human, a humanoid, which is a mutated human, or a mutated animal, which is just like, it took so long for D&D finally to be like, I guess you can play a sexy cat person. And Gamma World is just like, go for it. You want to be a rabbit with a gun? We got you. And I love that. I respect it, and I love it. And that's, yeah, I love that that's the first thing that they, the actual game term is a PSH. Uh, <laughs> Punk is Vice Human. I should have said my t-shirt just says PSH on it. <laughs> I can't imagine playing this game and playing a pure strain human. Like, so much of what's cool about it is all of the mutations and all of the mutation tables. And I can't imagine reading this and be like, yeah, I want to be... I don't want to have telekinesis. That doesn't sound fun at all. I would like to be boring. Except I, mean, I want to be the... charismatic, I guess, is the, the singular upside. I don't know. Right. Uh, to me, the juice in there is just like we did when we played Star Wars and everyone was a funky little dude except for one human. Or like <laughs> yeah. the classic Muppet thing of like there's a whole bunch of Muppets and just one human. Like that uh, friction there is really interesting and really fun to just be like oh these these rabbit folk and this person with explosive spines and fire vision they're at it again and i'm just here trying to restart the human race or whatever (laughs) when when you get to the item section of the book is when all this hidden interaction and like kinetic energy of the game explodes because it lets you know that pure strain humans are the only people that can access bunkers under the ground and there's so many little items that key off of this initial decision on character types. Also, notice it doesn't say, like, character race or anything like that. Like, we were already okay and saying character types. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, we didn't We didn't need that development. In, in YOL78. Uh, like, <laughs> um, <clears throat> but, the, yeah, the when we get to the item table is, like, when a lot of decisions that you would make get contextualized in in strange ways and you might never pick a pure strain human unless you wanted this bizarre interaction with technology in the game right because a lot of the world building and adventure suggestions are like you're gonna go into these locked irradiated dangerous places to find this ancient technology and that place those places are full of robots and uh computer security and that they hate mutants. They will destroy mutants on sight. But these humans are much more able to just saunter through that, especially if they get like an ID card or an RFID chip or whatever, they are allowed to access this stuff. And so it is, yeah, a really interesting way of choosing how you want to interact with the world right up front. And for character types, uh, there is a whole table of plant mutations. Um, that is then brought in into the game in the second edition that that's character types but 
easy house rule. You can roll on plant mutations too. That's that's stuff is very spicy. Well, my other like just pure joy with this game is that like eight pages of rules, making the world, making your character, and then just immediate gameable material that is for both the referee and the other players. Like all of a sudden, you've learned the pages, you've learned the eight pages of rules, and now you just get to see all this weird shit that you might be able to do, or a bad guy might be able to do or if you're a referee building interesting uh, interactions you can roll on these tables you can choose them like just tons of stuff that you immediately want to use or are afraid to use yeah i think even having like a reaction table this early shows you that like okay i have an effect on things around me like <laughs> people will have opinions about me no matter what i do right go push buttons go talk to people go be weird yeah, it's interesting because I, as I was reading it, I kind of got to the end and I had this moment of like, wait, how do I actually like use stuff? Like, how do I interact? <laughs> where, where is the section of this rule book that says like, if you want to try and do this, roll charisma plus whatever, like roll plus charisma or whatever. And I and I and so I went back to the beginning and was like, oh, it's all almost everything you can roll for by default is like contained within the attribute description which i yes. i realized i am not used <laughs> yeah. to right like yeah. the charisma section is the longest section of all of the abilities because it contains three different tables <laughs> like describing the ability it has the reaction table the charisma table which is like a modified how you modify the reaction table and then the charisma table modifiers and they and it's all like in explaining what charisma is and i was like right like each stat here almost is like a mini game because mm -hmm. they all apply to they all apply to different moments right like as opposed which i guess like the way when i say it like that i'm like that's every game but that's not really what i mean like they all have like very specific circumstances uh under which they apply and it's not like use whatever you're best it's like it's always going to be this stat for this thing um and it was kind of i realized that i was like oh i actually have no idea how that plays or how i would choose a character in that process um, I realize you roll them. So, but if I was like trying to figure out what I wanted to make of a character, doing things like, oh, the the, do I care about charisma at all? Because that is going to impact. It's going to actually impact every everything we meet, right? As opposed to I don't know. And this just might be me coming from a million years of D and D, where like you have a high charisma character and it means you can cast some spells, but very infrequently does it actually impact your social circumstances because you're usually doing that through role-playing whereas here it's like no this will this will set the tone for your meeting of every other being <laughs> in this game yeah it is like the an anti-matter to current trad games skill list because it just makes you uh conceive of challenges in a completely different way like when running this initially we were just trying to do overland travel and I was trying to create challenges and I was like, well, there's a thing you have to climb. And then we just kind of looked through the rules and we're like, well, then I guess you just climb it. You did it. That's <laughs> great. Yeah. That's, uh, that's what I was thinking. It was like, how do I do a thing? Like, how do I just do a normal action? Is it just, does everything just auto is everything an auto success unless it's specifically mentioned in the attribute. And I think the answer is yes. Like that's probably yeah. what I'd go with. Yeah. Uh, also, it expressly says that the referee rolls all dice behind the screen. The players never roll. 
which is so interesting to me. There's like some oral history. I want to say as someone was playing a game with Gary Gygax and he went to a file cabinet and pulled all the drawers out so that they were all out to the full extent and made this miniature wall and then sat behind it so that no one could see him and he was this disembodied voice of God and he was rolling all the dice behind this file cabinet and speaking to them and so then the players were only talking to each other and like this is the kind of shit that intrigues me of just like I want to play a game where the GM rolls all the dice and I never see them and I never do any math and I just say what I want to do and then 70 seconds later the GM gives me a, a description of what happens yeah, it like flips the conversation. It it actually eliminates the conversation. So I I played in a super duper classic trad game in a group that's played for a really long time. I just like sat in with this group, and the pace of the game was so jarring because the GM would present a situation, give all the relevant details, and then would shut the fuck up for fifteen minutes while players <laughs> like this group of seven players discussed. And not only discuss ruled out options and like created a what they thought was a bulletproof plan, gave that plan in triplicate to the GM, and then it would repeat that process again. And it feels like that style of play is so strange to me, but seems really interesting and almost like a uh, you know text adventure style approach for something like this. Absolutely. Just like sliding a piece of paper into something and then waiting and then getting a result back is so intriguing to me. Like, yeah, I'm not negotiating with the GM. I am letting them process what I have said. They're computing (laughs) my request. (laughs) Oh, also the art is so good in this book. Oh my God. It's Um, so good. The, the, there is, there is a little, a little guy under the heading hopeless characters (laughs) who has a gigantic nose the biggest eyeballs and feet for hands and i just <laughs> i just love them so much there was no uh, world in which i got past that piece of art and didn't love the rest of the book like that was it for me i was like okay i'm in all the art is by dave trampier who like painted the original player's handbook cover with like the person prying the gem eye out of the big demon statue and the big dm screen uh he like disappeared from the field in the 80s and people were always like what happened to him because he was so formative to like the dungeons and dragons brand and at one point was rediscovered quote-unquote by a reporter who was reporting on their like local city taxi infrastructure and like did a ride along with this cab driver and published this story with a picture of dave trampier and his name and people were like, that's the guy. That's the amazing artist. And, like, tried to bring him back in, and he was not having any of it. Um, I feel like if you worked with TSR at that point, you either, like, were hazed so badly that you want to continue that process on the rest of the world, or you are <laughs> fucking gone. Like, yeah, like, it's just so sad to me that these companies have not taken better care of their freelancers that were so formative Sorry to be a downer. Sorry for a tragic story. No, no. Story. It's, having just played um, AD&D, like, that art is critical to the experience. Yes, yes. And it is does more game design in art than it does in 
hundreds of pages of text. right like max so, just said like you see this yeah. creature and you want to be there and you want to know more <laughs> it's one of the ads for a gamma world game in i think it was like dragon or another magazine polyhedron was uh why is this mutant smiling and it just had a <laughs> like a weird monkey guy and he was smiling and i think that's the strongest pitch it was like i know that this hopeless creature is smiling <laughs> I want to be a hopeless creature smiling too. Yeah, players are the original hopeless creatures. <laughs> With a sad shout out to all the hopeless creatures out there. <laughs> so after that, the game gets into mutations, like mutations. Will said. Uh, physical, mental, animal, plant, everything you could ever hope to do. A lot of them feel like they're taken from sci-fi novels and comic books and stuff. Uh, any favorite mutations? Any mutation feelings? I had some favorites. I also was like, oh, I think I could make my body out of this mutation. <laughs> I, had this, I did this like mental. <laughs> I tried to like think about what it was a little mental exercise of like, what would my body be via this mutation table? Because um, early on in the mutation table, you get to the fat cell accumulation. Uh, and then there's also like, very there's something about very large body parts um and also new body parts and i was like i just feel like as a as a fat trans i can do a thing here this is like <laughs> yeah the possibly not the most positive but I, i'm not sure i even care about that but like this i can represent myself in this book <laughs> i can yeah they they totally run the gamut from being normal and a little bad or good or extremely bad or good just terrible one of them is just hostility field and everyone hates you yeah it's uh, so amazing no resistance to bacteria is one of those <laughs> like what, right. what were we thinking in the room that day or um de-evolution is a extremely wild one that one you regress along ancestral lines or you like make other people do it right Yes. Oh, yeah, you... Oh, my God. I say I can't even... So this is the thing about the archaeological games. Like, you have to create a situation in which you can devolve an enemy. (laughs) Right. Eyes are popping out of my head right now thinking of this. Um, I love the idea of of trying to DM this without having read all the mutation tables. So just like letting characters make their characters and then being surprised by the de-evolution. Like if somebody <laughs> that was threw like that when, at me. That was like when you were running uh, <laughs> DCC. Dungeon Crawl Classics yeah. and all of a sudden someone can like see all heat signatures up to 60 feet and you're like, oh, this ruins all the adventures of like people hiding in the darkness and monsters waiting to jump on you it was it's great like, it's yeah. one of my favorite things that has ever happened to me when i'm running a game because <laughs> i had to like instantly turn and change how i was going to run the rest of the game and i read it wrong and i didn't like i didn't even get to the part where it was like you know a foot or two of any solid surface will block it and so i totally read it as like they can see through walls uh <laughs> which is not correct but was great and I feel like that would be the same. Like, you get getting surprised with, well, I'm just going to make them, like, de-evolve. And being like, what? how do I? And that I... just opens a converse, like, a winding conversation about what that would, like, it's not just like, I turned back into primordial soup, man. Like, 
we're having a discussion about these strange creatures and what they turn into. Yeah, some of these are straight up mini games in themselves. Um, some of them include extremely funny works of fiction, like the genius capability economic genius one. <laughs> yes. Um, there's no such thing as an economic genius. That's not. That's well, not no, a there thing is. You... There is an economic <laughs> genius is someone who can turn a triple profit on anything they try to sell. <laughs> and the charisma bonus of a pure strain human. Right. Um, that's NFTs. Pure strain. <laughs> yeah. Because in my mind, they're just pushes now. But a push with uh, economic genius. It's going to be some some jerk. You're going to have to listen to them promote <laughs> their business podcast while you go through go through all the weird lands. I really liked Physical Reflection. It's a little boring. It's a little tame. Uh, Wait, how does that it, one work? Uh, the skin of the mutant reflects even the most intense forms of energy away from its body in random directions. Oh, my God. Which, again, is just a thing that, like, sounds like it would be so much fun to actually play. Like, right. just, I guess I'm going to shoot at you. Nope. I guess I'm going to, like, throw heat at you. Nope. Okay. Hmm. And the amazing stuff, like, so these are all great. Players can get all of these. But then there's a section at the end for the referee that says, you're going to have to make mutants as a referee. Choose a basic animal or plant. And then mutate it for ten generations. Like, gives you instructions yeah. to run this little lab this little uh linnaean <laughs> structure where you make 10 generations of mutants and then it says like you might get to the end and it sucks and it's not fun go back and start again like restart your lab make a new creature uh if the creature mutates in a defective manner for the first two or three generations it will not be able to survive so choose another creature and start over um just again like speaking to the mini game nature of some of this like it sounds really fun. You just have a comp. You're 17 and you have a composition notebook full of your failed mutations. <laughs> like Captain Doctor Caligari's composition notebook. Right. Yeah. Your mom finds this. What is this? It's just. Why does this cow have six generations of low fertility? What are you writing about? <laughs> yeah. Um, and then there's a picture of a sexy cat person. <laughs> this is, I, I've seen I think those video games the part of essentializing the process of making stuff yourself like makes you colleagues with the author here and so you can yes it's it's beautiful like it's such a freedom and trust of players and and readers that you're just like okay here's like here's a wild thing to do that I probably didn't even try once and you can make the biggest <laughs> freaks you can imagine <laughs> I think yeah, the, the thing combinations. about you didn't even try once is very interesting to me. I feel like as a teen, I was writing game stuff and just pretending that I knew how this worked. And there's this kind of voice to this book as that a teen. feels similar to me of just like we haven't, we have not played through these two hundred mutations. We're gonna write sort of from an authority, but. I think that mix of authoritativeness plus just like strange mystery and surprising chemistry is really endearing to me. Yeah, and a part of the non-playtestability, like the clearly not playtested, is like that is a huge advantage for this game. And yes. so my favorite, my favorite mutation is poor dual brain. Um, you have a second brain, 
which handicaps the functions of your primary brain. It may take over your body at strange times, have defects, and even counteract a mental power of a good brain in difficult situations. <laughs> uh, can anybody relate? Um, the extent and effect of this mutation should be determined by the referee and may be kept a secret from the mutant until a moment of truth. A secret bad brain. Yeah, guess what? You secretly have a fucking... A second a messed brain. Up, messed up mind. You have a criminal mind. A I'm shitty always, second brain. I'm always sabotaging myself, and I'm always going to blame my bad second brain from now on. You know, well, now you is the moment. The, you've been revealed. <laughs> yeah, now is the moment we have to tell you, Aaron. You have a poor dual brain. Do we want to talk about the artifact charts? Do we want to roll on some artifact charts? Okay, here's the thing about the artifact charts. The artifact charts in Gamma World are these like labyrinthine choice gates or role gates to learn and identify an artifact. So like in D&D, you would use an identify spell to learn what your scroll was. And in this, you play on the world's strangest flow chart to get to your bomb or you might die by doing it. And um, they are fascinating in the way they work so you're rolling a d10 and moving square by square through this strange uh flow chart and it shows you that you know if you get to one to seven you get to the next uh node which gets you closer to identifying or if you roll low you get closer to a node that will kill you um because you're using this technology that is a hundred or 300 years after our time and to our players are totally incomprehensible um or to our characters totally incomprehensible and in isolation these are extremely boring and you're just (laughs) rolling until you (laughs) succeed a simple check but the way that we played with these is we had every role be uh, a beat within the fiction of the situation where they had to identify so uh we ran an entire fight by using the pass fails of the artifact chart. And it made this like extremely beautiful, dramatic situation where we knew that um, we could see how close we were getting to failing and how close victory was at the same time. And yeah, it's so cool. What do you, what do you both think about it? I, I love this thing and I don't know if it's, completely nonsense or no they're beautiful they're like weird circuit diagrams yeah and when when you fail they're just little hand-drawn skull and crossbones uh and the arrows with the numbers they look like it was set on a on a typewriter and like an early drafting machine um and it is one of those things that initially is very impenetrable but then as you're reading the rules you're finding like Oh, if I get this mutant ability where I can sense uh, weaknesses and vibrations with my touch, I'm better at figuring out artifacts. I get to move my die roll up or down if I want. And if I get this other ability, I am smarter and I know how to use old artifacts so I can adjust it or roll again. And all of a sudden you have this like dream character build of like, I'm going to find this grenade and I'm going to figure out how to use it in two rounds. And I'm going to save the day every time by figuring out, oh, I found this vehicle I'm going to know immediately how to use it and I'll be able to drive us away from these monsters. Um, Like it just creates these scenarios uh, just from these rough interactions of rules pages away in the book that I really love. And then I'm going to have a poor dual brain and I'm going to think I'm going to figure out that (laughs) grenade and it's going to sabotage me halfway through. 
right? They are they are really lovely to look at. As I was looking at them, I was like, these must be so boring to actually play through. Like if if just played through how they're written, which is just do a series of rolls until you either die or succeed. Uh, but it did make me think about like there has to be a way to design something using them that is really compelling. Like they feel like a, a visualization that would be really useful in in some kind of game circumstance. It might be this combat that you're talking about, but I was like, if it if it was, you know, if the if the artifact was a building or a whole bunker, then it's really easy to yes. think of this as like a map that the the characters are actually traversing and then it becomes really easy to build the narrative at each of those nodes as opposed to like it's a grenade <laughs> you know <laughs> uh, yeah some the, of them are like pissed like the, the simplest one is like figure out how to use a rifle and i'm like i don't know that i can narrate 12 nodes worth of interest in a rifle <laughs> as you're making those like 12 rolls for a rifle so to i me, guess though, like I, oh, oh go ahead, go ahead. Oh, on one the, side, it's guest. like you can uh, roll on this as a group the entire time and go step by step and like narratively interleave moments and stuff. Or this is a live game for a player to do while RPG is happening around them and they might be in a tense situation. So like considering the live aspect of doing this as well is really cool. Um, but yeah, I am totally smitten by these. Aaron, what were you going to say? I think there's a fun Yahtzee feel because like I think it's like you can roll five times in a minute or an hour or something and so there is the like doing it under fire aspect but there's also just like oh this person is really invested in coming up with this plan for how we navigate the radiated desert I don't really care I'm gonna roll my 10 dice all at once and like there's this fun Yahtzee of like seeing how close you are to getting uh, a straight or a full house and just this kind of pain and joy that comes from like on one number away i was so close to figuring it this out but then it made me move back one square like or like it's almost like a game of sorry like it's just luck based but you do get invested in moving your little shit from start to finish yeah the the prizes too are amazing because you can get like a neutron bomb or a black ray gun or something <laughs> When we played, everyone kept on getting bombs. And then the biggest joke of this is that you roll your D100 to figure out what the category is. And then you, before rolling on the artifact chart, you kind of know what you're going to get before. Or at least that's how we played and interpreted the rules. And so you would roll on the bomb chart and see which bomb you were going to get. And then we didn't roll artifact condition until you knew what it was. And so you would you know, be spending this hot under fire time with basically a 40% chance that it fucking sucks. Like but that it doesn't work. Broken. <laughs> it's yeah. Obviously broken. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. I feel like, um, I feel like that would be really, I feel like thinking about it as a solo mini game. I love mini games. I really just want every game to be a bunch of mini games. This is how I feel about video games. So I feel about RPGs and the idea of like, finding a grenade and it not being a, like, if I was running this, I probably would be like, I'm actually probably not going to give you any artifacts in, in a like crunch moment because I don't know if I think rolling 20 D tens is a, like over 20 <laughs> rounds is a fun way to do a game. Uh, but 
the idea that like you're walking through the desert and some one of the characters is trying to figure out this grenade as they do so and at some point they look up and are either like oh my god i got it or they look up and are like guys guys <laughs> guys <laughs> or just yeah i love the idea of like everyone goes to sleep one person stays up to keep watch and they're rolling while they're up on watch and they just like explode or shoot themselves silently with a laser gun and everyone else wakes up in the morning and it's just like oh they didn't figure out the laser gun or they did and it's bad everybody wakes How up much... and it's like i have no idea what happened because i wasn't even there trying to figure out what the artifact was <laughs> right i do not know. how much would you appreciate a little like car that you spent 30 minutes of your life deciphering like that would be my new character is the thing i just found <laughs> right this is... i'm the one with the car now <laughs> I feel like it would be so cool. Like, I would want to expand this. This would take so much work, and I probably... I'm going to say that I would do this, and I would never do this. But the idea that you get this little card, and it's, the like, the, the grenade one, which is this, like, nice triangular shape. Uh, and each if each node had a hint, I would also love that. Like, if each node... I don't know how grenades work well enough, you know, but, like, you hear a pin click or something that is unique to whatever the the artifact is and so as, as you're Real. playing it through like as the player if i don't know what it is but there are weird little hints that i get as i'm going through that would also be super fun like oh something yeah. heats up internally or something starting to rotate you think you hear a piston or whatever it is right like like having sat with this for so long it is like a part of my next design where you have smaller versions of these nodes like maybe it's a four node path and you know that that's like it then is a story map for what your game is. And then players pick a bunch of different story paths and then interleave them together. They layer them so it makes one of these weird things. And then you've got your hour and a half of gameplay moving through this thing that you've all made together uniquely. And you get cool stuff. You you Each node is a thing. Um, yeah, there's just so many use cases for it that it's just so exciting and beautiful and Getting to this page is definitely the game designer moment. You were like, where the, wh what the fuck is this? And then it turns <laughs> right. into like, where has this been my whole life? Right, like, <laughs> why is roll D20 so big, but roll on these beautiful circuit diagrams, not a thing that we ever see again. Yeah. Why is a void skull not a part of <laughs> every game? Why is the poison matrix not a part of every game? Do you want to talk Matrixes. about the poison matrix? I love the poison matrix. <laughs> I'm making an awkward segue. Uh, the Poison Matrix. So this, I mean, the whole game is matrixes, right? Like everything is, everything has a level, even if you're like, a, you're attacking and you have your weapon level and that's that's compared to the armor class of the thing. And then you have to roll above whatever number you get. This is, it, it's worse than Thacko. Um, <laughs> I think, is this not the precursor? Like, isn't that what these weird attack matrixes are? Is like before we got to Thacko that actually has like a mathematical equation involved, we had just matrixes where you had to compare two sets of numbers and then roll over the corresponding result or whatever. That, uh, no, that's it. That's uh, So the physical attack matrix two is hit dice and armor class, I believe, is the mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. Um do I understand it? No. Did I need someone to explain it to me every time I needed to do this in either Gamma World or D&D? Absolutely. I am a proud Thaco non-understanding person. <laughs> but this one, I, 
maybe I'm incorrect, but I thought as I was reading this one, this one is not, it's not an equation, right? Like, I don't know, Aaron, what is it? What is Aaron, help. What? <laughs> Aaron, what is the answer? <laughs> Aaron, please explain. Where's the poison matrix? The poison matrix is different. So the poison matrix is that every poison has an intensity. Every radiation has an intensity. I think they're the same. And you compare the intensity to the constitution of the creature being uh, hit with it. And you get some degree of damage or whatever. But what's fun is like it goes really quickly from this doesn't touch you to it does one dice worth of its jam i think they're d6s and are they d10s i don't remember what the actual damage dice but what it means is that if you have a constitution of 11 and you get hit with a uh strength uh, intensity nine poison you're hitting you're taking two dice worth of damage whereas if you had uh i'm trying to line these things up if you had a constitution of 10 you'd be hit with three dice worth of damage and there's something that i really like about the idea that your constitution actually changes like the amount of dice that get rolled that feels really big <laughs> in a way that yeah. i enjoy and then there's a huge chance that you just die there's just right. if, what you didn't say is if you have a constitution of nine you just die yeah you just deaths. die <laughs> you're there's, melted there's this little like middle line of this matrix that is one two and three dice and then there's just so many d's because <laughs> there's just so many moments in which you got poisoned you're just gonna die. Same with radiation. Uh, but radiation like... has in the middle mutation. Like if you are at the yeah. perfect line of radiation strength <laughs> plus constitution, you just mutate, yeah. which is amazing. Which I'm so it's, into. It's both such a like easy to understand thing, but it's also very satisfying. Like something about these infographics are so satisfying as. So much of this is like buried in paragraphs. This is just like a beautiful annihilation line running through po- poison and radiation. And I know that I get to flip to my cool table when it's time to consult the poison matrix. Yes. I like the idea. Like this to me is much more interesting than doing a traditional, I'm going to roll to attack situation. Like if all of the, if all of the damage in this game was done via conditions and you had to consult the matrix every time there was a condition wonderful into it <laughs> i think that i mean i think that might be most of it because it sounds like there's a lot of radiation a lot of poison going on um whereas like the attack matrixes are uh nonsensical to me they do not i i cannot see the pattern in them <laughs> and because it's like if your armor if the target armor class is five and your weapon class is five then you have to roll a 10 but if your weapon class is six then you have to roll a 15 i don't understand i don't understand how they work even a little bit uh i'm sure they do i just don't they don't they didn't click in my brain as i was reading it yeah a whole other thing about like the attack matrix is that you don't know the the target's armor class until the referee tells you so you're just kind of it's the conversation never made sense to me when we did it like i didn't know what to ask or to prompt or and this is something that would have made complete sense to you if you came from playing other 70s games and this would be no problem but now i'm just like i don't i can't even 
Aaron and I are playing a game right now that is, we're playing an OSE game, and so we're doing AD&D, I guess, and it is, we're trying out Thacko for the, for many of the reasons that have been the same motivations for the podcast, and it, it didn't make sense to me until somebody explained the math, right? And it's like, you have your Thacko, and then you subtract the armor class or whatever, and that's what you need to roll over, and that makes sense, or whatever. <laughs> right like there is a consistent yeah that might not be the right math but it, there is a consistent formula um with that whereas this like it doesn't i don't i can't i can't follow yeah the numbers. So, something's just not clicking like there's maybe it's just like a little bit the numbers are a little bit too high like this might work better as a small numbers game but they weren't worried about that what is elegance like this whole thing is the opposite of elegant the attack ma- physical attack matrix two and the mental attack matrix have a pattern to them, and the physical attack matrix one does not have a pattern to it. And I don't, I don't. I think, whatever. Somebody, so somebody, we- listen to this episode and explain. Attacker's to me how this weapon works. class. Attacker's weapon class, I think, is based on type of weapon. There's a weird thing in uh, if your weapon class is sixteen, you need a ten to hit, and then elevens a few times, and then an eighteen. Yeah, what the and fuck then 11s and then a 12. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so yeah, I think like, like you could map these classes to specific weapons, and maybe it would help you understand like, oh, this weapon is better at piercing these lower armor classes because it's sharp and sharp cuts through leather or whatever. Oh, this is you may have just explained this to me. It's not logic, <laughs> but you may have just justified these numbers. So like, if we take the example of weapon class 16 which is a fusion rifle or like a micro missile or whatever yeah obviously a micro missile (laughs) obviously a micro missile it is particularly bad at hitting armor class four armor class one to three 11 and 12s armor class five to 10 10 and 11s but armor class four you need to roll over an 18 to hit armor class four is sheesh she- and peace metal armors and obviously total carapace so is there some like this why what about a total carapace is like so hard for a fusion missile to penetrate there's i bet there is some nerd logic behind the scenes there that is <laughs> yeah i just want to point out that like this archaeology that we're doing it's very likely that this is just a mistake and we're expressing in the in the text so much and we're taking it like where it is and being like how can we make a how can we construct a reason that these fusion rifles can't hit a total carapace because of the mutant spirit hidden within like is that an element here it is is it it might be the only because all the numbers are like descending Almost all. It's not a mistake because it does it with armor weapon class, attacker's weapon class 15. Has a hard time. No, maybe it is. Maybe it is a mistake. I'm trying to read all these tiny numbers as we do this. And maybe that one just is because all of the rest of them descend accordingly, it looks like. No, because if you look across armor class 4, it does not get better as you go across. It goes 15, 14, 15, 12, 10, 15, 11, 15, 14. Like, it's just total carapace as a wild card it's the total carapace now i know that if i was going to play this game i'd have to wear a total carapace (laughs) it would be like i have to to use that irritating one number yeah Uh, i like the gameable aspect of the radiation table where you might just try and find the right radiation to go get a new mutation yes yes 
Yes. Like that's creating some play just within a matrix and just numbers and representations. Right. Those are new character goals. That would be my whole play, which is how do I get, I just want to roll the mutation table again. How? So I can get a total carapace. So I can get a total carapace so that I can be indestructible to fusion missiles. <laughs> can I get a critical amount of rems in this session tonight? Let's see. <laughs> Yeah, I think out of character, my player goals are to ingest a near lethal amount of rams. And <laughs> I love it. You mentioned Aaron that you have favorite, uh, you have favorite cryptic alliances because the cryptic alliance favorite... section is pretty great. I, I got it's a favorite wild. creature and a favorite, uh, a favorite faction. My favorite creature is the Fen, the intelligent man-sized fish. Who can shape change into a large bird, quote, and fly away if the going gets rough. Uh, so I love the Fen. And then the Cryptic Alliance, I don't, I don't, it's not my favorite because I like it. It's my favorite because it's so strange. It's called the Ranks of the Fit. It's led, mm. it's like a fascist organization led by a mutated bear who read and was inspired by the following books. Animal Farm. Biographies of Napoleon Bonaparte's and Mein Kampf. <laughs> so there's just this shitty bear out there, and I want to kill it, and I love that. I got to that part, and I was like, "Excuse me, why are these? Why are these books in here? Why is it bolded? What are we doing?" It's the most '70s like world building thing to do. <laughs> I I really um, I think it's the followers of the voice that are uh, people who worship computers, thinking that computers created the Earth. And Very good. I would like to play that. Just the idea that, like, the idea of trying to, like, fuck with a player who thinks, this is assuming, actually, that a player would be a follower of the voice, but that, like, they are convinced, or playing a character who is a follower of the voice, who, like, is convinced beyond all reason that there were no humans before that like computers predated humans. And what does that mean for their like conceptualization of the world's and history? Love it. Love it. Um, I dig the zoo pessimists. <laughs> I knew it. I knew uh, you were a zoo pessimist. <laughs> it's the best titled one. Wait, it's um, zoo, zoo premises. Okay. <laughs> So mine is a one that I've created is the zoo pessimists. It's a bunch of uh, nihilistic mutant animals. Yeah. So these are mutant squad, muti squad, full in there, uh, lunatic fringe of the thinking mutant animals. <laughs> so uh, their agents are all telepathic. Yeah. Okay. Sure. <laughs> Yeah, and as far as animal, I'm trying to think of the ones I used during this game, and it's the animals are or creatures are the ones that are have the strangest names and not really connected to what they look like, and there's no illustrations, so it is like basically meditating on a description to get what it is. I wonder what y'all liked. I would pay many monies. <laughs> I would pay many monies if there were for it to have this book illustrated. Uh, oh my god, it would be so good. They're so weird. Just like, I feel like we should just read some names. Like in case you you wanted to know what they're called, things like Barlnep and Burlep are two different 
uh, creatures. But then there's also the gnarl ep and the menarl. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you got a crep plant. <laughs> Keishin, ob, podog. <laughs> I'm going to make the Pokemon rap, but it's the... <laughs> Gengar. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hoop is one. Hoops are <laughs> 2.6 meters tall, mutated, rabatoid creatures. The horal um, chew. This is... <laughs> There is a lot. Hmm. I and then there is the two that have names that I like. One being Fleshin, just Fleshin. You know, the Fleshin is just Fleshin. Right now, just out here Fleshin. The Fleshin is a two meter long fish, which I don't like, Um, but it can. (laughs) I have I have water issues. Um, It swims at high speeds along the surface until it launches itself into the air, where its broad pectoral fins enable it to glide on the wind current. For hours on end. For <laughs> hours on end <laughs> is the part. Uh, and then the Centisteed. <laughs> yeah, tell us about the Centisteed. I hate it. I hate it. Uh, this long-bodied mammal was once a horse, but the mutations it has undergone have given it an almost insect-like appearance. A centipede can trot at full speed on its 16 <laughs> legs, carrying two human-sized riders. It's... I hate that image. I hate that mental image. I don't like the idea that you just stretched a horse. And so if you I put believe this is an it, Elden Ring boss. Is right. the a lot of this feels like an Elden Ring boss. A lot of these are like, oh, you think we think that the Elden Ring designers just have like some weird, unique brains that are making some kind of super bizarro creative creatures. They're just reading old RPG books, <laughs> making it literal. <laughs> The the one I used a lot was the Sep, which is like a a land shark, but it can go underground. So it's just like this. It makes some cool play happen. Not to give like actual gamer tips on on monsters to use, but um, I like that a lot. It has a powerful organ in its head, somewhat resembling a brain. Somewhat. <laughs> like, what That's... the fuck does that yeah. mean? <laughs> <laughs> There's one that is a plant that looks like a horse, right? What's the plant horse one? There's one I just remember reading it being like my I can't get the shape of it because it's some kind of like mobile plant, but they say that the root system resembles a horse head. Uh, oh and I was like, I don't, I don't know how to, I don't know how to visualize this. <laughs> it gives off a lot of these give off a lot of that. Um, you know those those illustrations that were going around of that person who tried to photo make photorealistic their kids' monster drawings? <laughs> That's how I feel like this reads. And you definitely hit a wall because there is some de- like degradation in quality with these where they're just kind of like an animal and they have some mutations and then they're they add like a creep factor to each of them. Yes. And yeah, and the names are are the worst offenders of this. Fuck you, Gary Gygax. Get the fuck out of here. With your Zeth? Okay, With two this, H's? Okay, yes, the two H's <laughs> is egregious. But the... the but the Zeth Large-scale Zeth cool. combat tips is included here. I love it. The But each also, each Zeth is a sturdy blade of mutated purple grass. Okay, that is cool. That is pretty cool. I, I tweeted about the Zeth because 
Uh, each melee round that warm-blooded creatures are within 20 meters of Zeth, the plant will attempt to teleport one quarter of their seeds into the creature. They just teleport their seeds inside you. It's missing out on the ovipositor energy that <laughs> one might expect from the Zeth. You know, you know you're not wrong. Yeah. It's, yeah. The 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 fan the fanfic uh, the Gamma World fanfic is all ovipositors. There is there is a forum somewhere yelling about why there's no <laughs> ovipositor situation. Uh, the last thing that I loved that I wanted to shout out was the treasure list that's almost at the very end of the book, and it has 100 entries. And the first one is ballpoint pen. <laughs> good condition. Good condition. <laughs> But then you can also get a pleasure globe that pleases you when you grasp it firmly. You can get a can of Martian regeneration grass, a rusted can of spoiled sauerkraut that's poison 10, uh, fishing rod and reel in fair condition. Like, it just is wild, and it's always one of my favorite parts of the games. It's like, well, we have this problem. I'm going to look at my inventory. I have a four-drawer filing cabinet, an obviously broken <laughs> telescope, uh, home laser optics projector for light shows like what do we do here how do i make this work you got number 88 which is a four-handed sword <laughs> what does that just, look like just really fucking good like forged, that is that is on orleans a, like orleans that yeah that that is like on a electric bastion land level item description it's just yes. like mm, <clears throat> a four-handed sword yeah, I um, it's interesting because there's one treasure table, and these games usually have several treasure tables, which I um, this is a tangent for me to talk about that I realized when playing AD and D that there's usually like eight different treasure tables, and there is a a kind of spicing of treasure tables in an encounter. And I realized that each table itself consisted of narratively designing a place based on which table you used and which. Uh, spectrum of tables used and so that like if you use a little bit of table a and a little bit of table d this is like a palatial estate thing and that's what you would use and how internally they were probably really specific about what they used and uh to me it's just a through fucking g or whatever and it's just nice just have a straight up d hundred list and so from a like game feel standpoint, all of Gamma World consists of things that might include a saxophone that's okay. Right. There are an equal number of good condition ballpoint pens as there are to okay condition saxophones in Gamma World. Yeah. And that is beautiful. Like, they want you to run into these reoccurring things, like a mama doll and... Quote mama doll. Quote. <laughs> yeah. Quotes around I mama. I don't know what that is. A solid Duraloy scale model of Starship Savage Dictator. And it's on, like, actual mini base. It has the measurements for a mini base. Right. (laughs) I feel Uh, like this is just, that's it. I'm just going to play Gamma World now. That's that's, that's the only game. I think we should all play Gamma World. It's the only game I'm playing. This is the metric. This is the bar that has been set. Because for the last couple episodes, I've been like, are we ever going to find a game book that I want to play? And... Now everything will be, how good are you in comparison to how many four-handed swords <laughs> and barrel naps does your game have? Yeah, watch your ass, Gurps. We're coming for you. <laughs> oh, no, we're going to so be much... digging through your guts looking for locket. Good condition. Contains two photographs. 
yeah there's just i mean just from a larger perspective like there's just so much character here and it's just how much your voice can shine through in writing a game or just like even from any creative aspect you can put so much of yourself spread so thinly through a, a work and have it all come through it's so cool that's beautiful is that our ending is that our beautiful ending yeah i guess <laughs> thank you will for everything but also for signing us off that way uh do you want to give a final where you're at what you're working on yeah uh, i just want to say thank you so much for having me on my favorite podcast uh it's the best um i love what y'all do so much um i've been will yopes you can find me online at will.com uh i have games available at goodluckpress.com <laughs> Did you um, get will.com? And yeah, check it out. And uh I Torque is available now if you like post apocalypses but like a little bit more um cars and people being friends and finding community and a little bit less uh poor dual brain. Um check it out. It's a half uh tactical on the road roughin and toughin and there is half free from role playing in community. So it just came out. I'm looking in front of me right now. It's super cool. Um I'm so Good luck pumped. Press.co. I yeah, me too. It's gonna be so cool. I get to mail them out uh, next week uh, at time of recording. Yes, we do. In fact, have a Ko-Fi. It is Ko-Fi.com/slash/RTFM. Uh, you can also find all the back episodes of this podcast at RTFMcast.com. And the lost episode is coming. <laughs> I finished the master tape today you heard me tape it's, like a cassette it's like we're ancient right, we'll oh, is be, this the traveler episode this is the traveler episode it will be a limited release only it on didn't physical. die in character creation it did not <laughs> there die. It, it lives <laughs> uh yeah it's on cassette and it will include uh a miniature traveler style game where you play little alien travelers come to earth to spread message of peace and shenanigans and it fits right in the tape insert. Yeah, coming soon. Um, that's all. Thank you so much, Will. This was so fun. Thank you for inspiring us in general. And I'm looking forward to Torque so much. <laughs>